think the marathon training is the hardest just because most of us are not used to eating on a run. Our gut is not used to taking in nutrition. So when I start talking to the athletes I coach who are training for marathons, you know, it's really starting with the basics of getting your body used to taking in a little nutrition. And we may not hit that goal that I'm trying to get everybody to initially, because if somebody's really struggling with nutrition, you don't want to overwhelm the gut. So I think it's fear of taking in nutrition, lack of knowledge of how much your body actually does need and understanding the physiology of why you need it. If you're an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated, and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you're in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, me, Whitney Hines. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Runner Clicks, the Passionate Runner podcast. I am your host, Whitney Hines, and summer is just about over or is, I think it's now officially over for my family and me. I can't believe how quickly summer went by. Seems like every year it goes by quicker and quicker. I think this summer went by especially quickly because my family and I traveled a whole bunch. We really weren't home for longer than a week or so at a time. So in light of that, being so busy and soaking in summer and the fact that we are coming up on our two-year anniversary of the Runner Click Passionate Runner podcast, we are re-airing some of the best and most popular Passionate Runner podcasts over the next month. I know I especially am looking forward to listening to these because it's been a while and I don't have the best memory sometimes or just re-listening can help me kind of retain the information from the experts we talk to or be re-inspired by all the amazing runners that we've interviewed because everybody just has such an interesting and powerful story. So I'm really glad that you are here either to take this trip down memory lane or if this is the first time, I hope you enjoy these episodes for the first time. Thank you all for listening to the Passionate Runner podcast. If you are an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated, and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you are in the right place. RunnerClick presents The Passionate Runner with your host, Whitney Hines. Hey, Megan, it's great to see you. Thanks, Whitney. Great to see you. We usually are communicating via email because I always ask you so many questions and you always come back with such great like science-backed information. So I'm glad to finally have you here to share with our audience like all the bevy of knowledge that you have related to nutrition. And I want to focus today on just marathon fueling, especially like race day fueling, but also leading up to the race. Because I know that just people have so many questions and it can be so confusing and it's very individual. But before we get into that, I'd love to know more about you. How did you get into this profession? Oh, we go way back. Really back (laughs) when I was around 15 years old. I was a competitive runner. Started in, you know, typical middle school track and realized I was clearly not a sprinter. Started beating all the boys, doing the mile 
you know, time trial, whatever we had to do in gym class and realized that was my true calling in running was the distance running. And it wasn't until high school that I started working with a coach more competitively and really getting into my training and noticed that my times weren't where they should have been based on my training and everything else. And so my coach, you know, this is, we're talking, this is like 1980, goodness, 85, 86. And, you know, back then there was no such thing as sports nutrition. So my coach really had the wherewithal to kind of ask me, you know, how's my eating going and such a typical teenager skipping breakfast. Lunch was just kind of like nothing, like a rice cake and some peanut butter and like a little Debbie pack, you know, typical teenage eating. And then you're expected to train hard at three o'clock in the afternoon. So that really opened my eyes to how fueling impacts your training. And so he sent me to this guy, I don't even know if he was a dietitian or not, but this gentleman was great and really started just teaching me the value of eating and fueling your body and front loading your calories. And this is way before all the sports nutrition studies had come out. So that opened my eyes. And then I went to study to become a dietitian in college. So I got my degree in nutrition and has been have been working in as a dietitian for all over 30 years. Wow. So your coach was really ahead of the curve because just last week, one of the girls I run with, she ran for the University of Tennessee. She's only 24, 25, fresh out of it. And she was talking about how when she was in college, her coach said that they all had to eat at most 1500 calories a day. And like, I mean, that's just a couple of years ago. You still hear that. It's so frustrating. It's insane. So, I mean, the fact that, you know, back in the 80s, your coach knew that. I mean, that's remarkable. It's fortuitous. And here you are helping so many people. Yeah, really made such a difference and impact on my life and how I saw nutrition. You know, because especially to a teenager, especially as a female, you get those mixed messages. You look at your body type, you have negative body image often, you know, you look at these tall, lean runners, I was built like a gymnast, I was actually a gymnast before running. And, you know, you definitely have those issues as a young kid. So that really formed my opinion and views on how to use nutrition as a fuel rather than as a negative thing. So it really opened my eyes. And then clearly, you know, unfortunately, when I went started out my nutrition degree, there was no such thing as a sports dietitian, once again. (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, started out as a, you know, very clinical dietitian and but had been really racing all the way through. I took off racing in college. I had chronic injuries all through track and cross country in high school, which clearly when I look back on that was probably related to underfueling. And also that overtraining mentality back in the 80s, like no pain, no gain. I don't think we ever had rest days. I don't ever remember doing an easy recovery run. So it was very, very different training back when I was a kid. So in college, I felt like I just needed to kind of continue to run to keep my sanity, but not to compete because I was just getting tired of that whole injury cycle. But then really start picking up running again in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So I'm just still going, still going. That's awesome. So you're still competitive now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been running. What's your favorite distance? Oh, that's a good question. I would probably say probably 10K to half marathon. But as I get older, I keep shoving myself into these marathon races. (laughs) (laughs) I know. There's something so alluring about the marathon. I know, I I know. (laughs) Because it's uh, impossible to conquer. I think that might be it. Like, and that's the challenge. I think as you get older, you 
could always do a 5k or 10k. And it's just kind of like, what's that next challenge? So it really wasn't until my late 30s did I say, what's the next challenge? Because my kids had finally started to grow to the ages where I could say, mom's going to go for a three hour run. See you later. So I, I'm kudos to all those young moms training for marathons because there's no way I could have done that. <laughs> it's so hard. It's yeah. so hard. So I definitely started challenging myself in my late 30s and all the way through my 40s. And now I'm in my 50s. And taking on different challenges with different races and training events. That is awesome. Yeah. So you really practice what you preach. So when we get into this marathon fueling talk, you are going to know the the trials and tribulations that come with it. So, okay, well, let's just get going then. Let's just dive right in. Absolutely. It is confusing. <laughs> It is, it is it, like you think it would be simple. You just run. Okay, well, you run out of your glycogen after, you know, 90 to 120 minutes. So just take some gels and you're good to go. But your body is a very complicated thing. And especially when it's working hard, things don't work the same as if you're sitting on the couch or sitting at a table eating a meal. So can we first just open up talking about why marathon fueling can be just so confusing and hard to figure out for people? Well, first of all, I think there's a lot of mixed messages in the media. I think, you know, we've gone through these waves of pros and cons with carbs, fat training, protein. We get a lot of mixed messages talking about different macronutrients and how we use them for energy. And I think there's this kind of like rite of passage, like I did not fuel my 16 mile run. Aren't I a great runner? And I see this all the time. I mean, I'm a coach myself. I also do some, you know, group runs. And I think I'm the only one there with like a hydration belt and like planning my fueling every, you know, so often. And they all just kind of stare at me like, what are you doing? So I think there's a lot of mixed media messages, especially through even on social media running, you know, groups. I see that a lot. And I beginning, you know, trying to pick and choose which ones I, you know, answer and try to correct people. But it's it's a very heated discussion. But I think the marathon training is the hardest just because most of us are not used to eating on a run. Our gut is not used to taking in nutrition. So when I start talking to the athletes I coach who are training for marathons, you know, it's really starting with the basics of getting your body used to taking in a little nutrition. And we may not hit that goal that I'm trying to get everybody to initially because if somebody's really struggling with nutrition, you don't want to overwhelm the gut. So I think it's fear of taking in nutrition, lack of knowledge of how much your body actually does need and understanding the physiology of why you need it. So those are some common reasons why I see it's really difficult. All right. Yeah. I want to touch those points that you just said people don't understand or don't have the information on. But going back to the mixed media messages, what do you think that's rooted in? Why do you think it's kind of like People think it's a bragging right to be like, yeah, I ran for two hours and I didn't take in any fuel. Is it, do you think it's because like a lot of people get into running because they're trying to lose weight? That definitely could be a factor. I think some people don't want to have to be bothered with having to bring stuff with them. I hear that often, especially when we've had very hot weather this summer. I'm really trying to advocate more hydration during the longer runs, even runs that are around an hour. And there, you know, many, Athletes may be giving me a little pushback saying, listen, I don't want to have to wear a hydration belt. I don't want to have to like plant water somewhere on a course. 
I just want to just go out and run. And I totally get that. I totally I'm that person. Yeah, (laughs) I am. (laughs) So I get the pain of having and the inconvenience of having to plan out your fueling strategy. But I also feel that because carbohydrates, you know, way back in the 90s, carbs were the thing. Low fat, high carb diets were the thing to help people lose weight. And obviously, we know that does not work. Then we had this huge swing where then we were eating low, low carb, high protein, high fat. And I think we're kind of still in this mentality thinking that's how endurance athletes should eat, which is not right. Or I wouldn't say right, but maybe not right for everyone. And so I think that's kind of stuck with like, oh, I don't need to do that. I'm fine. And it it shocks me in how many people when I start saying, well, let's try at mile four, taking in a little nutrition into your long run. And you let me know how you feel. I 100% all come back and say, wow, I felt so much better. And it's just like, to me, such a like simple approach to making you feel better on your run, rather than torturing yourself out there when the, you know, the run itself is difficult. So try to make it as simple as possible and fuel your muscles the way they need to be fueled. Yeah. I mean, I've also experienced that firsthand. I am not a good person about practicing what I preach as far as fueling because I'm just like, I just, you know, I don't know. I'm like, oh, I don't really need it. I don't have a pickup or whatever. It's just easy miles. But the days that I do put an effort into taking in nutrition, I feel so much better and I recover so much better. And it's like I come in the door and I'm like, all right what are we doing family? You know, let's, instead of having to lay down and take a nap or whatever, um, which is hard, hard to do as a mom always. I know. All right. So the physiology. So when you're educating these people about why they need to take in fuel, hydration, et cetera, what is the physiological need for this? So most of us do our long runs first thing in the morning. Um, And when you wake up in the morning, because of that overnight fast, your liver glycogen stores are very low. And your body, your liver can hold up about maybe 80 grams of glycogen. And glycogen is your stored form of carbohydrate. So when we eat nutrients that are rich in carbohydrate, like your milk and yogurt and fruit and grains, even starchy vegetables like peas and corn, these carbohydrates all turn to sugar in the blood. And the stored form of that sugar when we're not using it for energy is stored in our liver and it's stored in our muscle. So the liver glycogen is really, really important to regulate your blood sugars. So in a person who does not, I work with a lot of athletes with diabetes, so I always reference this, but if you don't have diabetes, type one diabetes, your body has this wonderful regulation system. So if your liver has enough glycogen in it, then if you start to exercise and don't eat something and your blood sugar starts to drop, your liver will make enough sugar to regulate your blood sugars, which is a great thing. But when you wake up in the morning over an overnight fast, your liver glycogen stores are low. Your muscle glycogen stores are still adequate, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So if you start exercising fasted, with already low liver glycogen stores, you're running the risk of what we call, not in a person with diabetes, but kind of lower blood sugars where energy levels start to kind of dip. So that causes that early fatigue. Now, if you're just going to be doing a simple, easy, four-mile, barely moving, shuffling kind of run, 
you're going to be fine. It's the runs that are a little bit more intense, the progression runs, the tempo runs, the interval runs, and longer runs where you want to make sure that you're not fasted because that's going to really impact your liver glycogen stores. And that's going to put you at risk for having lower blood sugar, early fatigue, and so on. So then we've talked about the muscle glycogen. So when you have an overnight fast, your muscle glycogen stores are still adequate. But when you start getting into runs that are 90 up to 120 minutes at a slow pace, and what I mean by that, that's not marathon pace. That is probably 30 to 90 seconds slower than marathon pace. That's when your muscle glycogen stores start to drop. And once again, we've heard all about the bonking around mile 20, (laughs) partly because we're so fatigued, but also because maybe we didn't fuel early enough in that training and also early enough in that race to prevent that muscle glycogen stores from dropping too severe. So the purpose of taking in carbohydrate during a long run, anything over 90 minutes in my eyes, especially if you're adding in some marathon paced miles or tempo miles, then you really need to start fueling those runs to maintain that muscle glycogen and maintain those energy, those energy levels. And fuel early. So fuel at like starting 30 minutes in every 30 minutes. Typically, you know, every athlete's a little different. I have a lot of athletes that I may say, let's start at 45 minutes into the run. See how you feel with that. Because once again, I'm working with a lot of athletes that have probably never experienced this. And for me to say, take in a gel every 30 minutes, they're just going to stare at me like, I can't do that. So I may say, let's, let's baby step this. Let's, let's maybe at 40 minutes at 45. I just had a conversation with an athlete yesterday who is waking up, barely eating something for breakfast, maybe just like a banana before her long run. Because once again, it's summer, we're not getting up three hours before our long run to eat a meal. And because she's starting at 5am. So I'm not expecting her to get up at two and start eating a meal. So I said, you know what, instead of fueling at 40 minutes, let's start fueling a little earlier, because you're not starting the tank on a full tank, you're not you're starting your run on a full tank. So, so everybody's a little different. Some people fuel 30 minutes in, some people start fueling around 40 minutes in, depending on how their gut can handle that nutrition. Okay. I have a gazillion follow-up questions, Yeah, but before I get to those, okay. Can you talk about hydration? So water, the needs for water in our blood, in our body when we're running, and then also electrolytes, especially when we're sweating a lot in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. This has been such a hot topic this summer because it has been unusually humid and warm. And one of the things I've been telling my athletes is to start bringing water on your runs, probably like even 45 minutes to an hour long, just because of the sweat rate being so high. So let me backtrack a little bit on that. When we are exercising in heat and humidity, we have an increased sweat rate. So that means you're sweating more, you're perspiring more, you're evaporating more fluid. And so that means that you're going to lose a lot more fluid and putting you at risk for dehydration. So everybody has a different sweat rate, meaning are you the type of person that comes in from a run and drenched or do you are more of a light sweater? You can kind of tell how much of a sweater you are and you can even do a sweat rate test, which is very simple. 
just to kind of figure out how much weight do you lose in water during a typical, say, hour run. So I may have my athletes do this periodically during summer training, especially if they're struggling with dehydration or trying to figure out how much fluid they need to drink during a run. So depending on how much you lose, so for typically for every pound you lose during for an hour, that's about 16 ounces of fluid. So if you tend to, you know, maybe lose a few pounds, that means you're losing 32 ounces of fluid in that, say, period of time that you're, you know, running, say it's an hour or so. So everyone's a little different on their sweat rate. Once you kind of determine, you know, and the reason why we need to do this is because running a little dehydrated, and what I mean by that is if you were to lose maybe one to maybe 2% of your body weight during a run, that's fine. You're always kind of running a little dehydrated. The last thing you want to do is be overhydrated. And that's why when you get the bib for your races on the back of it, if you've ever noticed, they'll ask you what your weight is. And because in situations with marathons, if people are overhydrating, they're taking in too much fluid, and they come to the med station because they're feeling disoriented and not feeling well, the med tent does not want to assume it's dehydration. They can actually, even if they weighed you, which I don't think I've ever seen that in a med tent, but if they weighed you and you gained weight, that means you're taking in too much fluid, which will help them determine what kind of treatment they'll do. So it's this fine balance of being able to run, even if you're slightly dehydrated, that's okay. But once you start getting into over 2% of your weight loss from fluid during a run, that means your your performance could start to impair. So once we start getting in 3%, 4%, and I've seen that, people losing 10 pounds on a hot, sweaty day run, and that depending on what their weight was prior, that could really significantly impact their, their performance. When you're dehydrated, your blood thickens. So when that blood thickens, it's increasing your heart rate, it's increasing your blood pressure, it's increasing your perceived effort, and it makes it a lot harder to get that oxygen to the working muscles. So that's a real risk of developing possibly into heat illness and stress. So we want to avoid that. Real quick, actually, no, before I circle back to hyponatremia, electrolytes, how do you know, like... What role do electrolytes play when you're running? And then how do you know how much you need? And then, yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah. (laughs) So everybody's a little different in how much salt they sweat. So if you've ever come in from a run and you see salt streaks on your face or on your clothing or taste a lot of salt in your sweat, you could be a salty sweater. Now, what that can determine is like sometimes if you eat a very salty diet, that could be a reason why your your sweat is so salty. But if you tend to excrete a lot of sodium or salt in your sweat, then you probably need to take in a little bit more electrolytes than the average person. And the times that I say we need to start adding electrolytes during the run versus just after is when you have a run that's over an hour in the heat and the humidity. So... Typically, most of our electrolyte products out there are between 300 and 500 milligrams of sodium for a 16-ounce serving. And if we're trying to encourage athletes to consume anywhere from 16 up to 24 ounces of fluid an hour on a long run, 
that's typically about one serving of a sports nutrition product. So for instance, if you have somebody that's not a big heavy sweater that doesn't need to take in as much sodium, I'll go on the lower end and may even have them dilute some of this uh, electrolyte products. But if I have somebody who's heavier sweater, tends to sweat out a lot more sodium, then I'll say, let's kind of concentrate that a little bit more so we can get make sure you're getting enough sodium to replenish while you're exercising so you're not losing so much salt. Because once that sodium level starts to be excreted too rapidly without replenishing it, then that can start to impact your blood sodium levels. And that can, to some extent, maybe increase fatigue, increase risk of dehydration, and then sometimes people may get a little cramping with that as well. So what's the baseline? Do you have like a baseline nutrition plan and then people tweak it based on their needs? Like is it two gels, typically two gels an hour, and a sports drink with 200 to 500 milligrams of sodium in it? Yeah, I mean, that would be the ideal. But once again, we have to look at what race day offers. So this is a really important thing, because there's one thing you do during training, but you have to start practicing what you're going to be doing on race day. And many races, people are not going to be carrying their own hydration. No. So I usually recommend let's see what products are available on the race course and decide if that's something that you want to start practicing with during your long run. So you feel confident knowing on race day, oh, well, they're offering Gatorade Endurance on this course. That's one way for me to get in a little bit of carbohydrate, but also take in some electrolytes since I'm not going to be carrying my own fluids and everything. Let's see if that product works for me. So that to me is so important to have that race day plan, nutrition plan and implementing it on your long runs. So there's no question because I have a lot of athletes that were like, well, I only normally took in one gel an hour, but now on race day, I have to take in two an hour. So you have to practice that leading up that into, you know, your 18 milers, your 20 milers, even your 16 mile races. I mean, long runs. And I also recommend to test that out on your shorter tempo runs. When you're practicing some of these lactate threshold runs or your half marathon paced or even your marathon paced tempos, that's when you're running more intensely and your gut needs to get used to taking in that nutrition when you're doing that type of intensity. Because on race day, we know race day nerves play a huge factor in your gut mobility and Obviously, we have often gut issues right before race time and sometimes even during the race. And if we're not practicing what we did on the course on race day, when we're doing our long runs, if we're always just fueling on those easy long runs, we're not going to really know how our body responds to the same nutrition products on race day. Because your body, it's tough for your body to work on digesting while running so hard. So it needs to get used to how to do that. Absolutely. So I've worked with some athletes that really can only stick to liquid nutrition. And they end up bringing like a hydration belt and they depend on their own products. Whereas the majority of people can kind of do a combination where they can probably carry their own gels or goos or chews or whatever they're using. And then use the water on the course, or maybe alternate and use some of the sports drinks that are offered on the course if it's a hot day. It really depends on what the weather conditions are. 
and who is available to you during the race to help you out. Unfortunately, my poor husband has been recruited many times <laughs> during races. Um, I have a good story where I was running the Marine Corps Marathon, and that day was an extremely humid, hot day. And I just knew that, you know, I didn't want to bring anything with me except for my nutrition, my fueling. I wasn't going to bring water. But I said to him, okay, mile six and mile 13, this is where I need you to hand me my electrolytes. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. And he was able to get to you? Not to me. It was great. Don't always depend on that. He even did that for me for my last Boston Marathon. It was a kind of unusual day. And around mile 15, I said, I need you there. And I, you know, he tracks me and he found me and I'm screaming over here, grab my drink. Kudos to him. I know. Like to navigate closed (laughs) roads and stuff on race day. That's tough to do, especially in Boston. So and D.C. So, yeah, I know. So not everybody has those advantages. Yeah. But yeah, so practicing fueling with what you're going to do on race day is really, really important. So normally with hydration, if you're running less than an hour, you're fine. Just drink to thirst, you're fine. But once we start getting into longer runs, marathon training, I usually recommend taking anywhere from four to eight ounces of fluid every 15 minutes. Which is a ton. It's not though. It really isn't. It's not? Um, No. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I guess hydration just completely mystifies me, especially on race day. Like, Yeah. So, you know, you can get it down to a science. So I often look at the race day course with my athletes and say, okay, how many hydration stations are there? Usually for marathons, especially for the bigger ones, they are every mile or every two miles. So when you think about, depending on how fast you run, you might be taking in fluids every mile, you might be taking in fluids every two miles. And unless you're running in a 40 degree weather, which very few of us get this opportunity to race in really cold weather temperatures, but I usually recommend taking fluids at every single hydration station, regardless of whether you're thirsty or not. Because if you don't take those fluids early enough, you can't backtrack you can't recover from being already dehydrated during a race. You can't, you can't. Unfortunately, I've had unfortunate experiences with that and it's very dangerous and very scary. And so if you can kind of think about it, so let's say you run a nine minute mile or a 10 minute mile at every station, take in, you know, they hand you these tiny little cups that are maybe consisting of maybe three ounces of fluid take those sips, take advantage of that. Drink the whole thing. Drink the whole thing. I often take my three sips and then I toss it on my face. You can pretty much count on like a big gulp to be around an ounce of fluid. Okay. So I usually, you know, even on my long runs, I have a hydration vest. So I carry on my long runs, probably over 50 ounces of fluid. And every mile I've got my gut so used to like that watch goes off. I just start drinking about three or four big sips at every mile. And so that makes such a difference in training your gut to take in that hydration. Because if you start passing up those hydration stations or passing up the opportunity to drink, then you're going to really set yourself up for dehydration later in the race or the run. I feel like it's easier to swallow, pun intended, if you talk about it in terms of sips or gulps versus ounces. Yeah. 
So like a gulp can be up to like an ounce, three, like an ounce. So like eight every mile. That might be a lot for that would probably be for a larger person who sweats a lot. So I usually say, let's start with every mile taking in three or four sips and see how you feel. And if you find yourself in the long run, like, oh my gosh, my bladder was so full, it was way too much, then you back off. You kind of learn what works best for you by practicing these things early enough in your marathon training. So if you're kind of late to the game and going, I have no idea how much to have, and I've never practiced this, and all of a sudden it's race day, you're setting yourself up for failure. So the more you practice this and see what works best for you, and also the, in you know, the reason why I have my husband at those certain stations is because those were hot days. Yeah. I've run races where it's a beautiful 50 degrees. I'm just relying on the water and my goo and I'm good. Whereas I know I'm going to be running Chicago this, this uh, October. It could be an 80 degree day or it could be a 40 degree day. And that's really going to dictate how I'm going to hydrate during that race. And if I'm going to be carrying some extra electrolytes with me. All right. So with the gels, many of the gels, if you take them with a sports drink, that's going to backfire on you and like just basically turn to sludge in your stomach, right? Absolutely. So like how should runners time that? Like, I mean, if you take your gel as you're approaching a water stop during a marathon and you take the water and then the next one... The next mile or two down the road, you take an electrolyte drink. Is that a safe thing to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you've practiced that a little bit, so sometimes I'll have athletes bring like a little container of like a sports drink that they'd be using on the course at the race and kind of, you know, drinking the water for most of it and then kind of periodically taking, you know, maybe every third mile or fourth mile, maybe even at that 5K park, taking in some of those electrolytes. That would be really helpful. Yes, you do not want to chase a gel or carb chews with an electrolyte. It's going to be too much concentrated carbohydrate on the gut, and that can cause GI upset. And the other thing is if you take in that carbohydrate gel or chew without water, that can cause gut issues as well. Unless it's a hydrogel like Martin or or Cis. Yep, absolutely. So that's why you have to be – it's such a – logistically, it's a little bit of a, you know, you have to know the course, you have to look at those plans of where is that water station going to come? And is that going to be coming around the time I'm going to be taking in nutrition? So it is logistically kind of, all right, I'm coming up on that seventh mile. This is when I normally would be taking in some nutrition. I better start eating. I see the station ahead of me. I better start eating right now. So then I can get that water to chase it. Believe me, I've had situations where it hasn't worked out and you're like drinking the water and you're fumbling to try to get the nutrition out and everything else, but it keeps your mind occupied during the race. And, you know, I always call it an eating fest during running, but yeah, (laughs) because you're just constantly running. I recommend like practicing grabbing the water cups too as you're running like when I was running Indy it was cold and I was wearing gloves and the cup slipped out of my hand and I it ended up splashing on the poor volunteers I felt so bad and I was just like I'm sorry but I gotta go right I know (laughs) (laughs) okay so here's my personal concern then if you're doing that 
but you're also trying to make sure you're getting in enough electrolytes because I think I have discovered about myself that I am a salty sweater and I've started taking, I emailed you about this, some salt tabs the past couple of workouts and I have felt so much better. And I don't think that's what was irritating my stomach. I think I had a little bit of a stomach bug, but sorry. Yeah. TMI listeners. (laughs) Cause I think some people, they need more than what they're going to get on in the sports drinks that they're taking every other water stop then, right? Because if you're taking a gulp of a sports drink, you're probably getting, I don't know, I have no idea, like 25 milligrams of sodium in a gulp. And if you are doing that only, you know, two to three times an hour, like that's not nearly enough what you need. Absolutely. And then most gels only have or choose only have like, I don't know, 25, 30 milligrams of sodiums. You need to supplement. This is where it gets confusing. So then you need to supplement with something else, right? Yeah. So that's where you have to start getting a little savvy and understanding that am I going to get my electrolytes from a sports drink? Am I going to get my electrolytes from a salt chew or tablet? Or am I going to get my electrolytes from the carb gel or chew? Now, there are some carb gels or chews that are higher in sodium. I was just looking this up for an athlete I work with, and we found one that has like 240 milligrams of sodium per gel. And carbs as well. And yeah. Ooh, ooh. Do you remember what it is? Yeah, I don't know. Can I say the name? Yeah. Okay. It's the Huma gels. Oh, yeah. for real? Yeah. Oh, they have wow. a, okay. The Huma gel plus. Believe me, I have no rights. I'm not an ambassador for Humagel or anything. Oh, no. I was going to ask you what some of your favorite brands are later on anyway. So, okay. Well, that's great to know. Yeah. So she was normally taking in Humagels and we were talking about the whole electrolyte situation for Chicago because we were both running Chicago and I was concerned with the heat if we're going to get it. And I suggested, why don't you test out the Humagel Plus? And she said, I've already done that. I'm like, well, great. You're already on that. You're already done. <laughs> You've taught her well. <laughs> So that's a great one. Um, in the past, I've even used the Cliff Shop Block Margaritas. That's about 150 milligrams of sodium per three chews. So I usually would take in four chews to get the 30 grams of carbohydrate. So that's 200 milligrams of sodium right there. So there are some products out there that are higher, but there are plenty of other ones that are very, very low, which doesn't often make sense to me why they wouldn't add more sodium. I think that would be the perfect explanation. And It'd be like a unicorn. Exactly. Of, exactly. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe it just throws the... T- I mean, believe me, the margarita chews are very salty. And if you don't have that water with you, watch out. You're like, you know, really dry mouth. Yeah. They also have a salted watermelon chew, which I like, but it's a little bit lower in sodium. It's only about 100 milligrams of sodium for three chews. So there are some options to be able to use that. If not, um, you can resort to salt tabs or chews. Now I have, once again, I experiment myself all the time with different You're not a fan, right? I actually (laughs) tested this out on a Grand Canyon hike. I was doing a nine hour, 17 mile hike with my husband in the Grand Canyon in June, this past Yikes. June, very, very warm, <laughs> very, very warm. And I was yeah. on top of my electrolytes and I decided to bring those just to be on the safe side. And oh boy, they, I did, they did not sit well with me. Whereas other people, great. And maybe it's because I had not practiced with them. Once again, I was just testing something out during this huge and big endurance event. 
it was just a little too salty for me. I think it was more of the taste that was more of anything. Did it mess up your stomach or? It didn't. It didn't. You just didn't like the I didn't like taste. the taste, but I've had some athletes work. It works well. The only issue, the caveat with using the salt tabs or gels, I mean, excuse me, tablets or the caplets is that it is a concentrated amount of sodium. So some of them are very high, like 100 milligrams per caplet. And so sometimes if you take in too much with in addition to your gel, then it might be just too much for the gut to handle at one time and it can pull fluid into the gut rather than being used throughout your body first blood circulation and to hydrate you well. So everybody's once again, a little different. I had an athlete last time doing a marathon. She used it, worked great. So pros and cons, once again, everybody's different. So in that situation, or maybe just like a best best practice all around is just to kind of space out your nutrition as best you can. Don't take it all together. Absolutely. So there are some, I think, products you were using, like the maybe the 50 milligram sodium amount. And don't feel like you have to replace all the sodium that you lose, because you're really not going to know 100% how much you lose unless you get a salt test done, which can be somewhat accurate, somewhat not. I've even done some on myself. I use the Gatorade sweat patch. I tested this out, $24. It's not expensive. And you wear it on your forearm and it fills up with your sweat. You, they typically recommend doing it in an hour run. And I did this a couple times last summer just to kind of see how much sodium am I sweating. And it was pretty accurate to what I was taking in. So don't feel like you have to replace every amount of sodium that you're sweating out. You just don't want to get to a point where you're diluting your blood sodium levels. And what I mean by that is that if you were to, on a long run, say a two-hour, three-hour run, it's a hot, humid day, and you're only taking in water, your risk is lowering your blood sodium levels. And that can be dangerous. That's what we call about hyponatremia, which is low blood sodium. And that can mimic similar symptoms of dehydration, kind of that delirious, kind of just irregular heartbeat. It could be really, I mean, it can be deadly in severe cases. But so that's why we don't want to just go out with water on those really long, hot, humid days. So, because I I do have an athlete who was very worried about hyponatremia, and as long as if you're taking in sodium, you're fine. You're fine, yeah. So don't feel like even though I'm saying maybe 200 to 500 milligrams an hour, kind of you know if you can get in that maybe you know 200 milligrams on that low end, you're going to be fine. What about because I know there are products out there like LMNT that have a ton of sodium, like how. Can that help you to kind of preload your sodium before you run? Or is that because I, I think on their website, they were talking about research that said that actually like people hydrate almost too much and their performance declines are more tied to not having enough electrolytes. And so they were making the argument that you need way more than what people think. Have you heard anything about that? And can you just take a whole lot on the front end? How, I mean. Yeah, so there is a concept of prehydration. When you actually look at the literature, there's not a whole lot of truth to whether that's beneficial. But once again, when you look at some of the lay research, meaning people kind of talking about it, especially Dr. Stacy Sim, she's a lead researcher on female training and fueling. She kind of advocates prehydration. It's something I've experimented with, and I tend to take in a higher sodium beverage 
before my long run because I often find that I'm waking up, we're all waking up a little on the dehydrated side. And I'm one of these people that I, you know, I'm waking up super early and literally within a half an hour, 40 minutes, I'm starting my long run. So I'm not having an adequate breakfast, waiting that three hours to digest. I'll practice that before race day, but typically I know how my body responds. So I may take in not something that's a thousand milligrams of sodium. I think that's extreme. I think if you take in something that's around 500 milligrams of sodium for a 16 ounce container, that's fine. But you still have to allow yourself time to process that. So if you're taking that 15 minutes before a run, that's not going to benefit you. You need to have at least 30 to 45 minutes for it to process, to kind of get into your bloodstream, to help you go to the bathroom before you go head out on your run. There's some good products out there. I like Noon Instant. That's a quick one. That's a quick rapid rehydrate. Liquid IV has a higher sodium one. They used to have, Noon used to have a prime product. That's how they're discontinuing that. And you can always just concentrate some of the products that you are using that might be a little bit lower in sodium. So prehydration can be helpful. And I sometimes also recommend the the Martin electrolyte packet to have as a prehydrate as well. So I would say to most of my athletes, the night before a marathon or the night before a really intense long run, not the short, like a slow, easy one, is to take in some electrolytes be- the night before and then that morning of just so you're well hydrated and then just fuel and hydrate you normally would on that runner race. That's a great tip. Also a great tip to do it at least a half hour before because I'm like, (laughs) I have so much room for improvement in my fueling strategies. That is not something that I have been doing. Yeah. So here's a tip. Keep the, this, I mean, my husband thinks I'm crazy, but I get my insulated water bottle. I fill it with tons of ice, put my beverage, whether it's just water, depending on how long I'm going to be running. And I keep it at my bedside. And literally when I wake up, I go to the bathroom and I start hydrating. Yeah, I do drink a glass of water. That's like the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. But I don't drink any Gatorade or anything until after I've had my coffee. Yeah, right. Well, your coffee's hydrating. Your coffee's hydrating. It's hydrating, but it doesn't have the salt that I need, right? Yeah, but if you're having something with a little sodium in it, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. And it's mainly for the longer runs, too. Yeah. All right. So speaking of coffee, what is your take on caffeine during the race? I'm all for it. You know, once again, it could backfire if you're not used to it. And genetically, it really determines whether you're a caffeine metabolizer. What I mean by that is not everybody benefits from caffeine. So if you feel that that cup of coffee or that cup of tea kind of gets you going in the morning, then that's a great way and technique and tool in your toolbox to be able to utilize that during the long run or race to help lower your perceived effort, meaning you're going to run faster without that extra fatigue. Normally, most athletes only need about three milligrams of caffeine for every kilogram of body weight. So what you do is you take your weight in pounds divided by 2.2. That's your weight in kilograms. And then multiply it by three. Now, the range is three to six milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight. Six is definitely on the high end. But I usually say if you can do around three to four. So for somebody, say, who, you know, weighs 120 pounds, 
that's 54 kilos. They could easily take in 150 to 200 milligrams of caffeine during that race and get a benefit from it. An hour or for the entire race? Throughout the race. Throughout the race. Caffeine has a half-life of six hours. So it's going to be in your system. It's going to be in your system. And it usually takes anywhere from 15 minutes up to an hour to really take a full effect. So you'll start to feel some of the effects within 15 minutes, but it takes almost a full hour to take that effect. Oh, okay. So maybe like if you drink coffee in the morning, like halfway through the race. Yeah. Okay. So some people it backfires and causes GI upset. So I have a lot of athletes that complain to me, I have to go to the bathroom in the middle of a run or I, you know, then I'm like, then we need to avoid caffeine. This is a stimulant. This is going to stimulate your bowels. We do not need to do that. But usually, especially on race day, taking in that caffeine and, you know, 60 to 90 minutes before the race, so you're raring to go. And then usually halfway through is a great way to do it. So just one, typically just one, because most of them, I think, have like 250. No, some of them are only the 50 milligrams of caffeine and some are 100. So it just depends on what products you're using. I have experimented with all different types. I'm super sensitive to caffeine. So if I take it in, watch out. I'm like running like crazy. And it's great. I mean, I love caffeine. So I now I really want to see this. I'm going to have to come to Chicago like, and cheer you on. on. Where's my caffeine? <laughs> so I've taken in smaller amounts every fueling time. Like say I'm taking in 50 milligrams every, you know, say four or five miles. And sometimes right now I've been recently experimenting with a higher caffeine product where it's 100 milligrams to see how my gut will handle it, where I'm fueling it maybe only at maybe one or two times. So I may fuel at like maybe mile 12 and then maybe again at mile 20 because I may just need that extra little push to get me through the end of the race, whether it's a placebo, you know, like. Right. Yeah. So it just depends. But I, now that we've been talking about products, I am addicted to Verb Energy Bars. They are a tiny little bar. This is typically what I eat right before my runs. It's the only thing that I can really tolerate. And it's, it's like a cup of coffee. It's 65 milligrams of caffeine. It is only 15 grams of carbohydrate. So it's very not high in carb, easily digesting carb. It is a tiny little bar. It's just a carb bar. And I discovered these bars like on a website ages ago, maybe about three years ago, and just started ordering them. And they have all these different flavors. I recommend them to my athletes who can take in caffeine and it is my go-to. So if I'm traveling, this is what I eat before my runs. Now, completely different on marathon day. Marathon day, I'm getting up three hours prior to the race, recommending eating your main meal three hours prior to take in enough nutrition to carb load. I would never just recommend eating a Verb Energy Bar right for a marathon. That's not No. <laughs> yeah. What other products do you like? I'm a big fan of Martin. I like they're easy to open. They're easy to take in. That's a thing is making sure that it's something that you can easy, easily rip open with your teeth while you're running. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was a huge advocate of the carb chews for years and then just kind of got a little tired of having to logistically like plant them throughout my body during races. Right. I know. Right. <laughs> I have this bra from Lululemon that has pockets in the front and it's, and they stopped making it and it's amazing for my phone. And it's amazing. Cause I just stuff my bra with all my gels and right. I'm like wondering if I should just make my own. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It was weighing me down. I was like, my shorts were yeah. falling off cause I had so many carb chews. Yeah. 
It's hard to find spots to put all I that. I know. I know. <laughs> I was cutting them up two by two. So like they had like six in a pack and I would cut up two by twos and like line them up in my shorts. And, you know, I did oh it goodness. for years. I actually <laughs> just switched over to the Martin gels. This is probably too much information, but I ended up getting Invisalign <laughs> and I could not take and choose, obviously, because it's yeah. for my braces. So I had to make a logistical, you know, good decision and switch to the gels. <laughs> and I really don't like the consistency of gels at all. But the Martin gel to me is very easy to take in. It's easy on the gut. And I love the fact that you don't have to chase it with water because it's a hydro gel. That was a that was a great opportunity, you know, especially with winter training when I wasn't t- bringing a lot of water on my runs because it was cold out. I didn't need to drink as much. I could just rip that open, slurp it down, and be done. So that really saves a lot of time and a lot of logistical planting around my body of where I'm going to put those. <laughs> Seriously, I wonder, like, that is such a big problem is just where to store all this stuff when you're running. And then if you're not an elite, too, when you're running and you don't have a bottle, you know, bottle service. No, so jealous of those runners. I know. I usually, you know, find a make sure I have shorts that have a couple pockets and then I'll slip some in my bra. You know, you do find places for them. You do. I tried the science in sport, the cis gels this summer with the caffeine and caffeine doesn't, it helps me in the morning, but it hit me hard. I, and then I realized to just kind of take little, little gulps throughout and it was, and it really helped. I mean, it was the first time I've ever taken a gel where I really felt the effects and I was like looking at my watch and I'm like, am I really running this fast? How did, how did this happen? I know. So yeah, I'm definitely going to think about maybe taking that in addition to the Martin when I run my marathon, just as my little pick me up halfway through. Any other products you like? Just typical, like the noon products, the noon instant. I like that a lot. I use the UCAN generation. I like their hydrate. I've experimented a lot with their powder for when I was training for an ultra marathon. It works great for a lot of athletes, you know. I don't bring a lot of hydration with me on races, so I didn't want to have to resort to that. So I typically rely on the Martin products, the Verb Energy Bars, the Noon Instant or Noon Prime. Those are typically my go-to. And then I also do like the Honey Stinger waffles. If I'm going to be doing kind of like a slower run and I actually want to eat, then that that's sometimes I go to for those. And you like Scratch Labs too. For- oh, yeah. I always totally blanked on scratch love scratch labs yeah i'm always recommending scratch and i they just came out with a new product called scratch clear so if you're a type of person that really hates the taste of elect, you know the the powder electrolytes like that lemon lime taste or the orange taste you really just want to taste like water it's called scratch clear it has like a hint of lemon so i've been using that on my long runs and you feel like you're just drinking water but it has electrolytes Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's not our family. We have a Gatorade problem. Anytime we run out, my my husband's like, babe, what's our Gatorade situation? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm sorry. Amazon hasn't delivered them because for a while they were really tough to find. Yeah. 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 I know they're not the best and they don't have like all natural ingredients, but that's, I know. we, we love our Gatorade. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, we are running out of time, but before we wrap up, I would love to also talk about just real quick carb loading 
because a lot of people do it wrong. It can be confusing. And then when you throw in there, lots of people recommend like carb depleting and then carb loading. What do you recommend? Yeah. So the classical carb deplete while you're doing training and then having kind of a taper and then carb loading, that's the classic way of doing carb loading. It's not necessary. So the research shows that you don't have to go through this whole seven day process to carb load properly. What you can do, and you have to still remember you're tapering during this phase, but normally two days prior to your race, when you are only doing that simple little, you know, 20, 30 minute shakeout run, you're not doing anything intense and your muscles are able to take in that nutrition, you're going to be carb loading. So that is a very scientific approach to this. You can kind of really get geeky in nutrition with all of this if you want to, which I tend to do because that's my profession and I just love it. But you can also take the approach where I work with a lot of my athletes of just, you know, over the next few days, a general way to carb load without getting too nuts and counting grams of carbohydrate and ruining your total your diet is by shifting your calories to eating more carb-based foods, reducing the fat and protein in your diet. Because if you were to eat the same amount of protein and fat and add in more carbohydrate, that's going to lead a lot to gas and bloating and waking. That makes you feel really uncomfortable before the race. The way it effectively works is because you don't want to increase your overall calories. You just want to adjust those macronutrients. So you still can have a little bit of protein and fat at your meals, but instead of a six ounce meat portion, you're maybe only having two or three ounces. But instead of just a cup of rice, you're now having maybe a cup and a half of rice. You're just kind of gradually increasing the amount of carbs in your diet. And where I find where you can mainly carb load is through your beverages. Because this is something I normally recommend for people. Don't drink tons of juice. Don't drink sports drinks when you're not exercising. You know, all that kind of stuff. But this is the time to take advantage of those carb-heavy beverages. So by adding juice to breakfast or adding a sports drink as part of a snack, or my favorite, which I always do during marathon week, is add in tart cherry juice. So tart cherry juice is an anti-inflammatory, and it helps to reduce inflammation. So your muscle recovery is really reduced after the marathon. And I've done this for years. And I feel like instead of taking a week to recover, I'm cutting that down to three days. And there's a lot of research to support it. And the great thing about it is an eight ounce serving is about 30 grams of carbohydrate. So that's an easy way for me, I can take in two cups of cherry juice during my carb loading phase, and not feel like I'm eating huge amounts of carbohydrate, and feeling bloated and gassy. And is it, are there no concerns with like all of a sudden you introduce that into your diet and your stomach's like what in the world that's why I usually typically start at the week of my marathon train my marathon so instead of just those two days the whole week I'll take in two two cups of that like I'll break it up I'll do like eight ounces of breakfast and maybe eight ounces close to bedtime because it actually has melatonin in it naturally and helps you sleep so I'll start taking that in and you know If you feel like day two into it, it's starting to upset your stomach, then that's probably not the the choice for you. But I also feel like with carb loading, the way you get your carbs is by your snacking. So instead of having like a handful of almonds for a snack, we're now having a fig bar or pretzels or these higher carb products that have very little protein and fat in them. 
And that's a great way to help with your carb loading. So the hard thing with this diet is that you're cutting back on fiber because nobody wants to have to have GI issues on race day. So you're cutting back on fiber, you're cutting back on protein, you're cutting back on fat. So you are hungry all of the time. <laughs> so it does help with carb loading, but I guarantee you're going to be eating every two to three hours because that little handful of pretzels for your snack is not going to hold you. So that's where it's easy to get in the calories from carbs when you're doing this diet. But normally it sounds so pathetic, but usually after a race, I'm just craving a salad with like salmon on it. And, you know, because I've reduced all of that in my diet for those two days. But it's easy to do. It's just you've got to practice it. Possibly, I usually say the day before a long run, kind of shift your calories a little differently than you normally would and see how your body responds. So instead of, like I said, instead of that yogurt for a snack, maybe have some fruit and a handful of pretzels. Maybe start adding a little bit of juice. Try the tart cherry juice during training. See how, how your body handles that. Just see how your body responds. Because the purpose of carb loading is to really maximize that muscle glycogen. And it's, it's been shown that it possibly could increase your performance by 3%. So think about it. Your time could be 3%. But the downside is obviously you're shifting your calories. It's a diet change that your body's probably not used to. And you will gain some water weight, which is actually a good thing. It's what you want. Right. Yeah. Don't right. freak out Don't if you're freak out. Don't weigh happy. yourself during carb loading, please. Not <laughs> So there's definite advantages. Now I get very technical with it. I have some athletes that are really into counting their carbs and really doing it the right way, where instead of maybe eating kind of a moderate carb diet, you're now eating a really high carb diet. And I, and I can get really technical with it. So in my mind, I'm sitting there counting my carbs as I'm eating throughout the day, just for these two days to make sure I'm getting enough. And I've done it enough now. I know what my body needs, but it can be very scientific if you want to get it to that level. But if you don't, do you look at your snacks, look at your drinks, and maybe increase like your carbs by twenty five percent, absolutely, or so? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. I feel like it would be helpful to have a little checklist for your carb loading, but also just figuring out your marathon training, like. Hey, are you a heavy sweater? Okay, here are the products that you right. need. Are you? <laughs> That's a great idea. I mean, That's a great idea. Yeah, maybe we should work on that. I don't know. But this was very enlightening. Oh, God. We're going to have to talk again. I know. On the podcast because I have a lot of questions related just to fueling in general. And then we, you know, all the different strategies out there that people talk about, but this was extremely helpful. So thank you so much for sharing, sharing all of your knowledge. And uh, now we don't have any excuse to bonk. That's right. Right. (laughs) No excuse. No excuse. Just start working on it now. Figure out what our body's like. Keep practicing. Keep practicing. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I mean, I love that even you who has been in this for decades now, like, you're still experimenting and and figuring it out. So, well, awesome. Well, good luck in Chicago. Thank you very much. Thank you. I will follow you and be cheering you on. Uh, I'm just coming back from a hamstring tear. So it's going to be a slow Chicago. uh, Oh, I dealt with that recently too. Yeah. The hamstring is fickle. It's a tricky one, but I'm happy to be running and I'm 
I'm just kind of like using Chicago as a base and just kind of happy to be out there running again. Yeah, I mean, and the last podcast I recorded, I said, I think every runner should have a serious injury because it just makes you that much more grateful to be out there no matter what your your time is going to be. But well, I'm glad you're back running. And thank you again so much for chatting with me. Thanks so much, Wendy. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you so much, Megan. And thank you all for listening to The Passionate Runner. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at runnerclick.com slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from the episode, please leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash thepassionate runner. We'll read these out on future episodes. Talk to you next time.